News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Do we need to answer every single question or mystery? I mean, I love a good mystery, but is solving every single one necessary? There's beauty in the unknown, right? Maybe we don't need to look up every single thing on Google or Wikipedia to try to find an answer. Well, it turns out there are plenty of enigmas out there that defy investigation that we can chew on instead. And there's even a platform for you to turn to in order to read about some of these enigmas and investigate them. It's actually called Wikinigma. And on it, you can find topics such as asthma. Yeah, asthma. Because there is no consensus on why asthma cases continue to rise and what is actually causing all of that. Or maybe something like whale songs. There are theories about why whales sing, but we don't exactly know why they display that behavior. So you can find topics like this on Wikinigma and more, actually. So we had a chance to talk with Johnny Thompson, who's a philosopher and writer for Big Think. And he also told us about some of the other topics on the site, things like blushing. We know that the body has a specialized mechanism for blushing. So we know that there is a system developed specifically for that. But we don't know why we blush. In fact, it's actually quite an anomaly in terms of emotions because with most of our facial expressions like likeness or happiness or even being able to laugh, we can kind of suppress it or hide it or kind of like see people about it. But blushing is just it's a massive giveaway for most people. You know, I mean, that you are embarrassed and this is a really cringeworthy moment for you. Um, another example of, of an evolutionary unknown is, is the last which really interests me from a philosophical point of view, because, uh, again, like blushing, we know about the mechanisms. I love them, we know what it does for your body. Um, we know that it produces a lot of, of chemicals and endorphins, which are really good for you. So laughter is good for your heart, it's good for your mental health, and, and you can even relieve pain. But we don't know why, why what, what purpose it serves, apart from the fact that it's really good for us. So, I mean, in philosophy, there, there, there's two kind of theories, really. One is the, the superiority theory that, we laugh at things because we're superior to them. And there's the relief theory, which kind of is kind of very Freudian in the sense that it kind of like relieves us. It's kind of built up tension and pent up pressure. And neither, they're, they're theories, they're, they're, they're philosophical speculation. We don't actually know why we laugh. So, yeah, so, so but, 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 yeah. And um, I sorry, guess, should I get some, well, a few well, more examples? Well, well, I was going to say, I guess I'm surprised that in this day and age, with all of the things that we do answer and try to answer, that there are still these mysteries even about the human body or the human psyche and the human mind that we are, are we unable to answer them or have we just not investigated them? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I suspect it's just that the, the, the humans are just so complicated that it's very hard to isolate what, what is what's causing X, Y, or Z. And um, particularly when you're dealing in the past and, and, and obviously in evolution, you know, there's no records, there's no data we can access and stuff. So we have to really resort to um, speculation or inference from what we have at the moment. Um, and so another, another example of we, we, to do with humans is, is the word intelligence. So you know, we don't actually know what intelligence is. We all have an idea of intelligence and it's probably for most people defined by IQ really, which is essentially just one metric which, which was determined in the 20th century to represent intelligence. But I think, you know, today we're getting much more clued up to the idea that, that we have many different types of intelligence. You have you know, emotional intelligence, musical intelligence, spatial intelligence and stuff. But right. you know, if I asked you or any of your listeners to think of, you know, the most intelligent person they know, I, I suspect they'll pick either 
an IQ metric or probably based on qualifications after the, after their name. But there's so many so, different types yeah. of intelligence. Also, I wanted to, before I get off on that tangent, I also wanted to ask you about some of the other yeah. ones on the list here. For instance, the word penguin. Is it true that we don't know where yeah. that word comes from? Well, we don't. And actually, those are my favorite ones. I love it. So the origins of words. Um, yeah, we, so with the, with the English language, you normally have three sources, really. You have kind of like French, which, which means Latin as well. And then you have the Germanic Saxon and you have Danish. But there are certain words where we just have no idea where they come from. Um, it's like abracadabra, we don't know. Shark, we don't know. And I think dog, we don't know as well. And, and yeah, my, my favorite one is, is penguin. Um, this word just pops up. Um, we, can, we can find where it pops up and, and in the earliest source that we have, but we don't know its roots. Again, like asthma and like with kind of blushing and laughter, we have theories. So um, the, the Romans, for example, in Latin, they have the pinguis, which means kind of fat and juicy. But um, as far as we know, that we, we don't know that the Romans ate penguins. So it seems a peculiar thing to name a penguin. Um, the other explanation, which I think is probably the most plausible explanation, is, is that it comes from Welsh. Um, so you have pen, which means head, and gwyn, which means white. So obviously put them together, you get the white-headed thing. Hmm. But of course... That has problems as well, not least because you know, well, we don't tend to have many Welsh loan words in yeah. English because the English spent centuries kind of um, persecuting, really. And uh, okay, um, so and also of, you don't really get many. Sorry. I was going to say all of these things on this list then that you've talked about, which are fascinating to me. So we, you could put them all in one place, like this website, Wikinigma. But w- like, where's the information gathered? Can people add to it? Does it operate like Wikipedia? Yeah, it operates exactly like Wikipedia. And, and in fact, actually, Wikinigma is almost kind of the, the, the dark sister to, to Wikipedia. And so if, if you, any of your listeners or you yourself have been on the Wikipedia pages, there's a whole kind of like backstage where people are debating and quite aggressively debating about what should and shouldn't be included on Wikipedia. I think one of the most edited pages of all time was George W. Bush. Yeah, I remember because that, yeah. He was having these massively like kind of a passionate arguments about what should and shouldn't be included and so Wikinigma I guess is the kind of the result of that so they've kind of drawn out the things where there are no obvious conclusions where there is no kind of consensus and they said well these are the interesting areas these are the things that we want to know more about and you know if anyone out there has any answer to all the question on the Wikinigma then you get on there and 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 get a PhD pretty quickly, I suspect. <laughs> and right. so one of the other ones on this list are growing pains. Like every parent, uh, you know, with small children at some point thinks that, okay, well, my child's crying because of growing pains. But it's just kind of mysterious still, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, as you say, we don't know what, what the kind of the physiology is behind that. So, yeah, it's a very common thing that you get if you hit teenage years, you're, you're often your legs and your, kind of your joints are feeling very kind of achy and owy, but we, we don't at all know why that is. Um, again, I mean, we, we have theories. It might be to do with kind of like yeah, the general growth, pulling pulling on the bones and stuff. But that, again, they don't really make sense, and we can't really yeah isolate the one factor. So yeah, huh. it's, it's, it's interesting. Isn't it? Johnny, do you love a good mystery? I love a good mystery. Yeah, I, I, that's why I spent all my time on Wicked Enigma. Really, I kind of like going through all the air. Well, as, as a philosopher, I suppose I suppose we spend most of our time dancing around mystery, don't we? And we, and we enjoy the unanswered question. And in fact, for me, sometimes when, when the question is resolved, that's kind of the end of a, a good conversation. So I think debates and mysteries are kind of what get everyone people talking around the dinner table, don't they? And it's why you uh, go for a drink with someone, because you want to have a debate about what are the possible causes of laughter. Really. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Listen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, and see you later. Have a good day. 
That's Johnny Thompson, philosopher and writer for Big Think, talking about those enigmas that we still have. There's a place you can go to check them out, Wikenigma. Uh, but fascinating to think that, yeah, laughter, we still can't explain that exactly. I mean, it seems so subjective, but why does it happen in the brain? Um, you know, and, and other issues as well, like where does the word penguin come from? I, fascinating. I love that kind of stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. We have an update for you on a story that we chatted about yesterday. Our contributor, Scott Schantz, is with us now. And Scott, I I actually smiled when I saw the update on this story. Yeah, it feels like a little bit of justice, right? retribution, yes. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about uh, the Air Canada incident that you may have heard of where two women were actually kicked off a plane because they refused to sit in seats that had been vomited on. We have this clip of audio. We don't know the act- who the actual women are, but a woman who was sitting in the row behind them, she said this about the interaction with the flight attendants. You know, there's been an incident. Uh, that's why we put the coffee grounds and sprayed some perfume. She finally came back with two blankets for each person. So six blankets and lots of vomit bags and a package of wet wipes and said, that's the best we can do. So they get on this plane, totally Vegas to Montreal, and uh, they get to their seat. Someone had thrown up there. They kind of cleaned it up because there's not a lot of time, but there was still vomit on the seat belt and the seat back and the seats were wet. And they said, we're not sitting here. The flight attendant said, you have to. There's no other flights. There's no other seats. We're totally booked and we got to go. And then the pilot came and said, sorry, you can't stay on the plane. You have to leave. Yeah, you've been rude to the flight attendants. And and the people around them said, no, there's no way these women were rude to the flight attendants. Of course you would be like, I'm sorry, I have questions about this. So what's the update on this, which I love, is that I guess somebody at the Public Health Agency of Canada said, "Um, hey, yeah, no, Air Canada, you can't do this. Yeah, you bet. So, I mean, Air Canada has apologized to them and is apparently looking into it and stuff. But yeah, the Public Health Agency has said, that, uh, you know, any time that there is something like this, like biohazard material, that that plane needs to be like shut down, uh, quarantined, uh, sanitized, all of these type of things, um, because you could be bringing a, a disease, yeah. quite literally, in into the country. You don't know. Like those people, okay, sure, they were leaving Las Vegas, so they probably were hungover or whatever. They'd had too much to drink. But you don't know what other type of illness that they might have had that you are now exposing all these people to. Exa- exactly that. Exactly that. And uh, so they're looking into it. There's the potential of an investigation and fines and, and all of those type of things. But, uh, man, as we find out more and more about this story, you really realize uh, like quite a bit about the air airline industry, you know, because all the different airline experts and stuff are sort of weighing in on it. And I mean, one of the ironic things is that like a year ago, it was, you know, masks, wipe down everything before you, you know. And now it's like sit and vomit and get on the airplane. Totally. Right. Um, But yeah, one, I found this quite interesting. One expert sort of weighed in and said, the the seat cushions are replaceable. You could be replacing these seat cushions. It happens all, he actually went so far as to say it doesn't happen every flight, but something like like this definitely happens every day, whether it's like kids, toddlers, and not necessarily vomit, but something where you have to be able to replace a seat cushion quickly. So they're designed to do that. They might not have them on the plane, but you know, it might be like a half hour airport, delay. You can probably, and you yes. know what? They'll delay us for all sorts yes. of stuff. If it benefits the airline, they will delay us no problem. This seemed like 
there was a, a very big oversight here. It seemed like everybody involved probably lacked a little common sense about how this was going to be portrayed. Yeah, and it speaks to this idea that they've packed these schedules so tight, you know, just in terms of uh, we need to increase profitability, yada, yada, yada. The cr- ground crew only have so much time to turn a flight around, and there's no allowances for, for errors there because that pushes everything back. And uh, then you make a snap decision like this. Oh, it's good enough. We'll spray some perfume so people don't oh, smell man. it, but they could still smell it. And then, of course, the story this ends happens. up like this. Going and now, viral. Yeah, the public health uh, agency is investigating. Good. Uh, and I hope they st- I hope they find Air Canada for this one because oh, nobody uh, should be subjected to this. Here's It's gotten to the point now, Scott, where if you get on an airplane, if you have a flight scheduled and let's you arrive at the airport and you can actually get to the gate and you can get on board and it leaves, I would say, on time, let's say within 15 minutes sure. of when it's supposed to. That Now, if that happened, if that would happen to you, you would go, wow, that was lucky. It, you know what? It does feel like that. that Even though that's the, what's supposed to happen. Right. That just doing what you're expected to do is considered like a massive win. I also found this out. In, of the top 10 airline carriers in the world, Air Canada placed 10th yes. in flights on time. You know, only 51% of their flights arrived on time. I believe that wholeheartedly. And like that speaks to your point, right? All if. No, almost, not, just barely half, barely half, like a failing grade in any university course I of think, getting it done on time. And, and I they're flew, like, it's um, good enough. I think I flew Delta last year at some point, and they have an app, and the app will tell you. Sorry. <laughs> thanks for the cheering. Uh, the app will tell you where your flight, where your plane is. So if you're at the gate and you're like, oh, my plane's not here, where is it? The app, if you go on there, the app will tell you, oh, here's where your plane is. It's arriving from Salt Lake City momentarily. But, and you're like, well, this is genius. I've never seen a Canadian airline have an app like that before. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's We're so there's, far behind. Yes, there's definitely room for improvement. And every time there's a story like this, you think that this is going to be the catalyst. But hopefully this is the catalyst that actually like improves hopefully. air travel in our country. Hopefully. Scott, thank you very much for you that. If it. you want to weigh in on your airline horror story, please do. Simi at cknw.com or you can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. How are things over there? They're good. They're good. Yeah. How are things with you? Um, Wonderful. Thank you very much for are, asking. Are you enjoying being back at work at uh, oh, I the love early it. times of the morning? Oh, yeah. I love my job. Yes. Ooh. What time do you get up in the morning? Well, because of this show now, I get up very early. <laughs> you know that Vaughn is still listening, right? I know his mom was up at three. He was up at three, um, leaping through the periodicals. Trip. I know he's on a road trip. He's down who knows where in you know Arizona, whatever. Uh, but still is sending me the occasional note about what a great job Rob Shaw is doing. So no, no pressure that Vaughn is listening and judging you. Okay, well, we got to knock this one out of the park then. Yeah, we better. Okay, let's get started. Uh, we were going to start today by talking about Nicholas Simons. And I guess this happens when you've got an election that is a year away. You're gonna, we start to hear about people who are maybe not going to run again or retire. But what's interesting about this one? Yeah, this is a, it's an, he's an interesting cat, uh, Nicholas Simons, the most prolific heckler in BC politics, and the building is going to be much more quiet uh, once he leaves, uh, announcing that he is hanging up the heckling spurs, I guess. I don't know. Really? I think that metaphor doesn't quite work. But uh, 
he's decided that he's uh, he's going to retire after 18, 19 years. And, you know, we debate decorum at the legislature all the time. Is heckling a good thing? You take a class of students in and you watch these uh, grown people shouting insults at each other while they're trying to deliver speeches. It's part of parliamentary tradition, but um, no one did it better or worse, depending on your point of view. Uh, then uh, Simons, the MLA for Powell River, Sunshine Coast, uh, he's he's got an interesting history. You know, when people quit politics now with the kind of uh, pedigree or, or background that Nicholas Simons, they've gone through ups and downs. He was one of the baker's dozen that brought down Carol James right. in opposition. He, he, uh, he came in in opposition promising a bunch of different things about ferry service. And I talked to him about this the other day because he's on – the Sunshine Coast, where service is just uh, a perpetual problem, and promised to fix it, held town halls in opposition, whipped up all of these people uh, to fix the ferry service, and he's quitting now with the ferry service worse than ever. <laughs> 19 years in politics, worse than ever. It's so bad that the Earl's Cove Saltry Bay service basically collapsed on the weekend because one person couldn't make it to work. Uh, one ferry worker was in a car accident and the whole, there's cancellation. Which is crazy so, to me, right? One person being away to one, that? That fragility of the system, um, just bringing it down. So there's a little bit humbling uh, to spend, you know, almost two decades in office uh, and be promising this issue and discover that, you know, you go from opposition all the way to the cabinet table. There's a social development minister at the cabinet table making decisions, advocating for ferries, and then, you know, you're you're it doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, the limits of the ability of one politician to change the world, I guess. So, uh, an interesting character. You know, we're going to see more people start to make these decisions because uh, you know, party leaders want to know from their MLAs this fall, around now, and in the next little while. Are you going to run again? It's a year to the next provincial election in October. People need to start working on things like finding new candidates, fundraising in their ridings. You you know, it's, it's one of the questions here is whether what David Eby does with that information um, uh, on cabinet and whether, you know, Nicholas Simons was someone he bounced from cabinet. He removed him uh, when he set his own cabinet. But there will be other ministers in the BC cabinet right now who decide not to run again. And do they tell David Eby around now, does he keep them in or does he move them out right. uh, and put other people in? And so there's a lot of these discussions happening. And Nick Simons is one of the first to sort of come out and publicly say he's he's done. Right. And so this will be the true transition, though, won't it, Rob, between the former John Horgan government to a David Eby chosen government? That's right. You know, there will be some New Democrats who even they predate Adrian Dix. They predate uh, when he was leader, Carol James. Um, some of them come from Carol James and the big NDP resurgence of 2005, you know, after the party almost got wiped off the map in 2001. So those folks are now looking and increasingly, you know, choosing to to uh, move aside and to make way for other people and renew and refresh. So David Eby is going to have to choose and this is a perpetual issue in the NDP, um, do you kind of allow all the independent-minded, very active riding associations across the province to come up with their own candidates, which is how the system's supposed to work, and then you just welcome them onto the team? Or in this modern age of politics, when you're a one-and-done leader, you got one shot at the election, especially when you're premier, uh, do you try to 
put the team together that you want, recruit the candidates you want, push them through the riding associations, use your power as leader to build your superstar team, or do you just make do with the people that other folks choose? And so he's got to make those decisions as well. And who replaces Nick Simons? And does he, David Eby want that person? Or is that a local person that the local organizers want? And it's the challenge. Kevin Falcon has it on the liberal side too, over the next year is trying to figure out who your team is and, um, do you even want them and do you have any control over them? Right. That, that's what's going to make, I think, the lead up to this election so interesting. So do you feel like this is kind of the first shoe to fall on this? I think so. I think there are other MLAs who definitely aren't running again, who are not quite ready to say it publicly uh, and uh, certainly some cabinet ministers as well. And so uh, there's no deadline from the EB government right now. You know, uh, the premier, he has a couple other people phoning around asking folks for their intentions. They're not being told you need to say by X date, but that's coming soon. Uh, and that will be this fall uh, and the next couple of months or by the end of the year. And so those folks will have to get their mind around it. And I, you know, credit to Nicholas Simons, who literally just walked into his local community newspaper office uh, last week and said, Hey, I got some news for you guys. I'm quitting. <laughs> That's the <laughs> I wanted way to, to tell do you it. first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to tell you guys first. And it was like, okay. And so, you know, that community connection right. often means we find out later after the locals uh, talk about it. So, Interesting. Yeah. Now, Rob, we've been talking this week, you and I have, about the return to school, uh, the focus on students. Clearly, there are some opportunities there for the opposition to kind of score some points against the government, don't you think? I think there are. And we saw BC United yesterday release a four point sort of education plan of which I would say two are pretty good wedge issues for them. Uh, two of those four issues. One, I'm, I'm not really sure about in the, and the, <laughs> the fourth is, is a bit hard to believe, but um, they're worth talking about and, and kind of going through here because I believe uh, Falcon, uh, BC United leader Kevin Falcon is up on, on uh, the radio later this morning. Yes, right? he's joining us in our eight o'clock hour. So let's start with the two that you think are the good points. Well, as we were talking about earlier this week, the elimination of the letter grade system for kindergarten to grade nines is, an, is a very clear and uh, definitive decision by the NDP government. So BC United is all over that saying, you know what, we'll flip that over. We will bring letter grades back and we will respect the parents and teachers uh, and students who said very clearly in government consultation, they don't like this and they don't want it. So that's a great wedge issue for them. It's very clear for people to understand, bring back letter grades, uh, change the NDP decision. The other one uh, is enforcing a cell phone ban on schools and on classrooms to enhance student engagement. Uh, this is, again, an NDP decision. Education Minister Roshna Singh yesterday was asked if the province will do this. She said, nope. It's up to each district. It's up to each school. It's up to each teacher in their classroom. And BC is not going to step in with a policy. Other provinces have started doing this. Quebec has moved in that direction. So there's another decision that BC United can use as a contrast and say, you know what? We will bring that smartphone ban in province-wide. It doesn't matter which classroom you're in. So those are the two hmm. that I would say are easy, smart, uh, quick wedge issues for the for the party. All right. And let's talk about the other two now. One of them is says, ensure timely and on-budget school construction. I mean, that sounds good <laughs> when I see that, but I also think that is not necessarily the issue. The issue is building more schools. Sure. Yeah. And look, like there's a couple things there. Yes, the schools are overcrowded and the NDP has not built enough of them. And yes, 
its promise in Surrey in particular to eliminate portables is laughable. It's, it's never going to be achieved. Uh, and you don't hear them saying it out anymore. But I, and I'm not going to number salad uh, this issue with the capital plan and the building. <laughs> number salad. And that kind of, That's gold. It's just, it, all it is, you, you really just have to do a reality check on it. There's not enough schools. Like that's what yeah. people come away with. And so I think it's easy for BC United to pick on this. Um, but it's not like the NDP hasn't tried. They do have a special office to help build schools faster in Surrey. Money is no object for this government. Uh, debt is going to double under the NDP, the side of the budget where you build schools and hospitals and things. It just literally can't build fast enough. It, you have labor shortages in construction, you have inflationary costs, and it's you have to buy land. Uh, and so those are issues BC United will have as well. And the party does not have a great track record as the former BC Liberals in building enough schools. It had a really stupid policy in its school building where it only built schools to the population needed at the exact moment you built them, not to the future. And the NDP quite rightly changed that. You build the schools with empty space and even now they're they're filled instantly. So yeah, that one sounds great. Uh, and the, you know, United's gonna say we're experts in building things and the NDP are incompetent, but that's a much more that's a much grayer area because if money is no object and you have a government motivated to do it and they still can't do it, the problems uh, are not political will on school yeah. construction. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Okay, and then the fourth one here, and I'm wondering kind of where this one came from. It has to do with vaping. I don't know what the plan is here, but you do hear from teachers that vaping is a big issue. Uh, kids sneaking them into class, you know, and uh, doing it. I have a teacher friend who says he sometimes catches kids behind their books quickly vaping because you can get away with that. Uh, it's not like um, it's sometimes you can you can kind of hide it. Uh, and I think the, the promise here is strengthen measures to combat youth vaping. I don't really know. You'll have to ask Falcon about it. Could be a surcharge in vaping, could be a complete ban. Good luck with that on vaping. Uh, we see it all the time with adults uh, everywhere. Um, but uh, it is an issue teachers have mentioned. And so I guess that's an issue that the political party wants to get behind. But I pretty vague. I'm not sure where yeah, he's going to go with that. That's what I thought too. And I looked at it, I thought, you know, I think the thought is there, right? The idea is there. But again, this, I mean, we saw this coming down the tracks 10 years ago, Rob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look, some, some things are great to promise whether you deliver them or not. People just remember the promise, right? And that you're that's listening true. to them. The NDP has a whole stack of those type of things where John Horgan was great at saying, I feel your pain. I know this, you're gas upset prices. about this. We're, gas prices, yeah, we're, right? we're on it and then <laughs> yeah. nothing changes, but at least you're heard. And for a long time under the previous BC Liberal government, people didn't feel heard. And so that's a big part of politics is saying, I hear this, I see it, we're going to do something about it. And then, you know, nothing ever happens, but at least you, at you, least heard, you were heard. You're, you're listening. <laughs> um, and I guess that shows as well that the opportunity, clearly, and, and we discussed this, that this is the opportunity that the opposition feels that they have when it comes to education and students right now in the province that are they being presented with this by the government? Like, is there more the government can do to fix this? Yeah, I think they're capitalizing on the fact that this feels like a very tone-deaf school launched by the NDP government. They're getting questioned about certain things and simply responding with, well, you know, these are our decisions, right? This is our decision on the on the letter grade system. And in the words of Rashna Singh, people will get used to it. Um, that, that part makes it easy for political opponents to come in and, and promise the opposite. And I think you see the opposition, BC United, sharpening its teeth right now, a year to the election. They're yes. going to start taking issues like this 
and making election promises out of them and hope that people begin to pick up a little tiny bit of who they are and oh yeah what was that party that promised to bring back letter grades you know the, the one that sounds like a soccer yeah. team exactly. yeah yeah and so like so every every little thing that comes up from now they'll they'll embed a promise in it and uh that's what you're going to see for the next year as they slowly kind of build that up mm. so it'll be an interesting year in politics to watch for it will be rob thank you okay take care this is mornings with simi so your phone tracks you wherever you go, right? It tracks how many steps you take. It, it tracks every single thing that you search for on the phone and even the things that you say. So do you also need your phone to check your mental health and wellness? Well, apparently Apple thinks so. The company is set to roll out an update to its software that will include a range of features uh, devoted to mental health and wellness. Things like a state of mind mood tracker. I mean, what is that all about? Our next guest knows, actually, because he's checked it out, used some of these features already, and we're going to find out more about them. Owen Chevalier joins us, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Philosophy at Western University. Owen, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So I take it you do like your phone. You must spend a lot of time on it. I do, yeah. And I'm also a huge fan of Apple. I've got uh, all, all my tech devices are Apple. Okay, so then what did you experience? What are these new features? Um, yeah, so so Apple's got a couple of different features um, that are varying levels of, of mental health um, focus. So, so there's the mental uh, state of mind uh, tracker, um, which is something that the user puts in. So, so they report on their state of mind at different times of the day uh, and also how they're feeling uh, overall throughout the day. Um, and then there's also an option to screen yourself for anxiety and depression using uh, tools that psychiatrists or, or anyone doing diagnostic uh, work would use. Um, and then those tools will connect you with uh, uh, resources in your area if you show risk factors for either depression or anxiety. Owen, why would I want my phone to do this? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure. I, I imagine everyone's got a bit of a different reason. Um, Apple claims uh, that tracking your state of mind is a way to feel better about your life. Um, so, I mean, this is not this is not a new uh, philosophy, but the idea that you sort of journal about your day um, and you can put uh, your mood into perspective with the things that you were doing, the people that you were seeing. Um, and that can make you feel, you know, maybe a little bit less uh, catastrophic about your life. Um, but with the added benefit of the Apple ecosystem, so it has access to everything that you were doing. Um, if you use a watch, uh, then it knows when you were working out. Uh, it can, you know, track who you were with, if they have iPhones, uh, pictures you've taken, places you've gone, stuff like that. Okay, but then Owen, let me ask you this then. So let's say you are having a bad day and your phone does recognize that you're having a bad day. What What is your phone going to do for you? Uh, right now, not much. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, all it can do is track that and then provide you with data, letting you know that this might be related to some factors in your life. Um, so there's a, there's a little chart you can see, and if you've reported that you had a bad day, then you can also see like how much sleep you got or how many exercise minutes you had. Um, but it's not going to like 
do anything for you beyond that. You'd have to take the next steps. Okay, so do you think these tools are valuable? Um, to an extent. Uh, I, I, think, I think they could be valuable if you knew how to use them properly and understood the limitations to them. Um, my concern with the features are that, uh, that I, I think Apple likes to present its technology as something that is the, the solution to the problem. Um, and this is at best just a tool that will get you to the solution to the problem. Right. But in the end, shouldn't we be wary of big tech companies that want this kind of information from us? Because what are they going to do with it? And, and that's another good question. Apple especially is very uh, private about what it does with its data um, and its intentions long term. Um, Apple is actually one of the few corporations that, that don't sell your data uh, to, to uh, private companies. But uh, for instance, if Google gets a handle on this technology, then they would probably use it in that way um, or any of the other tech companies. Um, but but Apple's got other goals in mind um, that I, I wonder about, um, you know, improvement of AI software. Well, yeah. Um, like what? Yeah. I, I'm just skeptical of any big tech company that wants that much personal information about you, because in the end, they're not doing it because they care about us. They're doing it because they feel like they can benefit from having this information. Yeah, exactly. The, the other thing with Apple is that it really benefits from you being reliant on it. So if you have put all of your health information into the iPhone, then that is now something that you rely on for the rest of your life. Um, you know, if you, especially in the U.S. right now, you can put in uh, your health records. Um, so you can basically make your iPhone something of a general practitioner. Um, so then you now need to get the new model. Um, and that's what Apple really wants at the end yeah. of the day is that you keep buying their products. And that's the Apple Watch thing, right? That's how they get you. And the Apple Watch has become so popular, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So then do you think people should be wary of this? Yeah, I do. I think, I think people should be wary of any new advancements in technology. But how do we, like, okay, we all have Apple, a lot of us do anyway, um, and those updates come kind of automatically. How do you not use that then? Um, I, I don't even think it needs to be about not using it. It's about making sure that, that you don't make it a replacement for the, the expert opinions. So, you know, your psychiatrist is the only one who can diagnose you with anxiety or depression. And if you haven't gotten that diagnosis, then you can't assume that you have been diagnosed. Um, and if you need help, you should seek help from professionals who have been trained to do to, to help you. Right. So do not trust your phone to diagnose you, which is Apple would love that. But you know what? We should all be skeptical. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Oh, and thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's Owen Chevalier, who's a doctoral candidate in the Department of Philosophy at Western University. He had a chance to try out some of these new features that Apple is rolling out with an upcoming update uh, with their iOS health app and their Apple Watch. But this iOS 17 update will include mental health and wellness features. And honestly, your phone does not need to know this. I know some people will do it because they're like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. No, your phone does not need to know all that information. Apple does not need to know all of that information. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We've all read the stories recently and heard about them, right? Stories coming out of the United States about queer people being stripped of individual rights, feeling like things are taking a step backwards. But maybe sometimes as Canadians, we think, oh, that, that's not going to happen here. That couldn't possibly happen in Canada, right? Well, it turns out we are wrong on that. It is happening here, too. This story is kind of coming to our attention because of numerous school districts, actually, that are severing ties with a camp called Camp Quanos. This is on Vancouver Island because of concerns over discrimination. So our producer, Bianca Rego, had a chance to speak with a young man named Rylan Rastacott and his mother, Sylvia Webb. Their story is really interesting. He's a 16-year-old who, after attending Camp Quanos in Duncan for about eight years, applied to become a camp leader. He wanted to spend more time there. But then he found out that all camp staff were actually required to sign a contract forbidding, quote, sexual sins, such as homosexual behavior. That's what it actually said in the contract there. Obviously, he had a big problem with that. So as I said, our producer, Bianca Rego, sat down with Ryland and his mother, Sylvia Webb, to hear their story. Started from the beginning here. Like, what happened during the application process? How did all of this start? It was actually fairly lengthy and complicated. So you had to uh, solicit, I think, three different references. Then you'd answer several questions. By several, I mean like a lot. It took us about a good hour to go through all of them. And then I basically, nothing was officially said, but basically I was hired and I was asked if I had seen the staff agreement and I said no. And they were like, great, we'll go over the staff agreement. We'll give you another call. Then you can sign off and we'll be all good. And I was like, great, awesome. And then I left feeling like pumped and great because like, oh, I just nailed that interview. And then I found their staff agreement on Google, very easy to find. I printed it out. And then my mom was like, well, hold on, print me a copy too. We'll look through it together. And then we looked through it together. And then immediately this like hush falls over both of us as soon as we hit section three of Camp Quano's staff expectations where it says refrain from practices which are condemned by God in the Bible. These include but are not limited to drunkenness, swearing, or use of profane language, all forms of dishonesty including cheating and stealing, abortion, and sexual sins, including premarital sex, adultery, homosexual behavior, and viewing of pornography. Furthermore, married staff members agree to maintain the sanctity of marriage and to take every positive step possible to avoid divorce. My jaw dropped open, and I, I think I actually sucked in my breath and said, oh no. And Ryland's shoulders kind of drooped and... Keep in mind, too, this kind of came out of nowhere, like thinking about all those children that just sign it and their parents don't read it. <laughs> but we went over it together and my I was just like shocked, like it felt barbaric. And also just having her say like, oh, the final thing to do is just like look over our staff agreement. And if you if everything's good to go, sign it. And I was like, how many people just, you know, 16 year olds just go, yeah, it's fine and not think anything. And just even knowing that every single staff member that I communicated with and like all of my counselors and leaders agreed and signed this contract. It's it's it, it's almost too much to comprehend. It's even as my my mom and I have said the the definition of Christianity is very different family to family and 
if we're talking Bible terms, okay, there's like what the Ten Commandments and like the golden rule of the Ten Commandments is love thy neighbor, love everyone. That's literally what God is saying. And I don't even understand the staff agreement or why that is in their staff standards. It is just absolutely bonkers. So, Sylvia, obviously in hindsight, when you first arrived at Camp Quanos and when Ryland started attending, were there any red flags that you noticed? I always found it odd that, like, females couldn't go into the male's cabins. Like, I couldn't drop off my son to his cabin. Uh, His dad could go, but I couldn't. And we actually went with somebody whose son came with us, and she wasn't allowed down there. Like you're, if you're a mom of a boy, you can't take your kid down there. That's just their rule. And they still do that to this day, for sure. They absolutely do. So now that all of this is finally coming to the forefront about quote unquote sexual sins, how have people responded? Well, for starters, they took down the staff agreement. You can no longer find it on Google or anywhere. They also, I believe took down their Facebook ratings because they were getting review bombed. We've had people who have reached out to us telling us their stories that they were ostracized from the camp due to coming out there. And you just, you feel like this sense of you need to say something about it. You need to do what is right. And that's what my mom and I decided to do. A lot of people are, you know, are reaching out and do have a lot of questions and they make it quite complicated. Well, what did you expect? We hear that a lot. And like one of the things like we stick with is that God loves everyone. And it doesn't say God loves everyone unless you're gay. I think at the end of the day, the Bible has been rewritten a lot by, you know, in different takes on it and stuff. And I think religion means a lot of things to a lot of people. I feel like the heart of Christianity is being a good person and loving each other. And that's what Ryland and I do. And that's how I raised him to, you know, to love thy neighbor. Um, I can't imagine how you would make sense of being a Christian that thinks homosexuality is a sin and divorce is a sin and an abortion is a sin. The situation has caused a lot of heartache um, for our family. And you know, Ryland is courageous and brave. And at the end of the day, he's still a 16 year old kid. (laughs) So I think, I think it's not finished yet. I think it's still, still has a ways to go. And I'm really proud of Ryland for just who he is. I couldn't ask for a better son. That's Sylvia Webb and her 16-year-old son, Ryland Rassicott, speaking with our producer, Bianca Rego. Uh, Ryland went to Camp Quanos in Duncan for years, wanted to be a camp leader there, but then saw the contract and said he couldn't sign that. And there's a reason why lots of school districts, it turns out, uh, including Couch and Valley, Nanaima, Ladysmith, Souk, have all cut ties with that particular Christian summer camp. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking a lot about schools this week, right? It's September, so of course we are. And there's all sorts of different things to highlight, concerns for parents, you know, things that are going to be happening in classes. One of those issues is also the curriculum. BC is in the process of, of moving over to a new curriculum, one that has been years kind of in development and slowly moving towards full implementation of that. It's called a 
core competencies curriculum. And what it does is it focuses on critical thinking uh, rather than just kind of memorization and, and rote facts, that kind of thing. And that sounds good, right? But there are some concerns that people have about this as well, about whether or not this is the way to go. And when people talk about the concerns over this focus, they they cite a study actually by our next guest. It's Dr. David Grismer, a research professor at the Center for Advanced Study of Teaching and Learning at the University of Virginia. And he's done a lot of work into what are the best ways for students to learn and retain information. So Dr. Grismer is with us now. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here. Now, tell me about the work that you have done here. Like, in your experience, what is the best way for kids to learn? Well, learning is an interesting process that works in a kind of exponential way. That is, when we're reading, when children read a text in a book, they will often encounter words that they don't completely understand. So that kind of uh, harms their, their sort of ability to understand what they're reading. So... Um, Basically, what we try to do is give kids more knowledge, that is, more availability of words uh, when they're reading, so that it can become better readers. And uh, developing the knowledge in children is kind of an interesting process. That is, uh, children can understand things that we say to them because they've had previous experiences or they've, they've read other texts or uh, basically, if they run across the word they don't understand, they will try to kind of make sense out of it, out of it with the surrounding material. Right. Not always well. So um, basically, we're trying to do research and understand better how to give kids the knowledge that they need so that they can understand what they need better. Okay, I understand that. Like that, that makes sense to me, right? That you want kids to figure things out on their own, which is kind of different from the way, say, I was taught in school where it was like, memorize this, memorize this process. So, so what is better then? Well, um, I think the learning process always requires us to read things that we don't completely understand. That's basically what learning is about. So that we have to be able to train the mind to deal with situations where I don't quite understand this word. I don't understand the meaning of this. And it's at that it's at those times that basically we we build more knowledge. We will try to better understand a text, try to understand it better. Understanding the text we read today makes it easier for us to understand the text we read tomorrow. So learning is this kind of exponential process of, of continuing to uh, build the knowledge. That is required to uh, to read increasingly complex texts. Right now, you worked on something that you said there's uh, a core knowledge um, that would work better by by teaching core knowledge that would be better. What does that mean, though? So, um, core knowledge is a curriculum that has been developed from K through eight that tries to emphasize on kids building that knowledge that they need to understand things. And we build knowledge when we teach subjects like geography and history and science, when we take kids outdoors and nature. The knowledge-building process is not a lot of mathematics. It's not even a huge amount of science. It's really about 
kids having experiences that they try to understand and master so that they have an increased knowledge so that the next time they read something, they, they will have that knowledge and be able to read better. So the understanding reading process is a, uh, uh, a long-term sort of exponentially increasing process whereby we learn more, we, we uh, sort of get more words that we know, we, we therefore learn more, therefore we read more, da 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 Dr. Grismer, like when it comes to curriculum, these things are, some things are fashionable, right? Like curriculum changes. There's kind of pendulums that go back and forth on this one. And are we right now just in a mode where we feel like we need to build up kids' critical thinking skills? Um, Yeah, I think we, um, there's still a lot of research to be done on curriculum. But we now have some experimental studies that uh, we've done which basically say this this curriculum called core knowledge curriculum from K through eighth grade, actually, is a curriculum which focuses on this knowledge building process. That is, it takes advantage of, first of all, what we think kids should know at eighth grade, and then it breaks it up into, you know, the K through eight things and said, well, in order to get kids where we want them to be at eighth grade, we want them to understand the society they're in. We want them to understand its history. We want them to understand, you know, nature. We have to really sort of put, start preparing at the younger grades in order to sort of teach and prepare them for each grade. Right. But so you, said the, uh, those are experiment, uh, you said those are experimental studies and things. I guess what parents want to know is how can we really definitively know what works for our child? Well, the only thing that we definitively can prove is science. I mean, we have to do experiments. We try this curriculum, we try this curriculum, we try way of, this way of doing things, a different way, and we try to do it experimentally so that we can tell whether we have made a difference. Now, in the, in the area of reading, we now have experiments which we have used a curriculum versus the normal curriculum used in schools, and that experiment showed that this teaching this with the uh, core knowledge curriculum really increases children's uh, scores on on English literature studies, uh, on national studies, so that that's the way science sort of learns how to do things better. And we now have learned how to do curriculum better because we've done these experiments. And right. we, were, we were the ones that did the experiments, and they showed really strong effects on kids' knowledge at fourth and eighth grade. Right. That's exactly what I thought was happening here, too. Uh, Dr. Grismer, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That's Dr. David Grismer, a research professor at the Center for Advanced Study of Teaching and Learning at the University of Virginia. He studies curriculum and, and sort of the ways that kids learn. And this is this is what I always think about when we hear that, okay, well, here in BC, we're working towards implementing this new curriculum that focuses on kids' critical thinking skills. Not everybody is happy about it. You know, recently there have been some pieces written, uh, you know, about this isn't the best way for kids to learn. We shouldn't be doing this. But I really feel like, okay, it is an experiment, right? You do this, you think, oh, is this going to help us help kids learn better? 
some years go by and you realize, okay, some things are helping, some things are not helping, and then they kind of adjust accordingly. The problem is that we always think, well, that's not how I learned. It Wouldn't it be better to learn how I learned? Well, we hope that we learn from that, that we can improve things. But, you know, parents are always concerned that their kids get the best way of learning possible. The problem is we just don't know. Kids are so individual on that front. This is Mornings with Simi. Letter grades in schools, portables in school districts, teacher shortages. I mean, right now it feels like there are so many challenges in our school system. How can they be fixed? Well, the opposition BC United has some ideas on that. Leader Kevin Falcon joins us now to talk about those. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks very much for having me, Simi. Now, you introduced a a four-point pledge or plan yesterday. Why do this? Well, because we want to uh, really focus on improving student engagement while they're at the schools. We want to restore transparency and grading so parents actually know how their kids are doing. We want to protect children's health because we think that's really important. They're, they're young. We want to make sure we protect them from the, the, uh, the evils of vaping. And we also want to follow through on our commitment to get more schools actually built, not just promise them, announce them, re-announce them, but actually get them built. Because in districts like Surrey, where the NDP promised to eliminate all portables in four years, uh, instead they've almost doubled the number of portables and they're now looking at stacking them. It's just not an acceptable outcome. Okay, I want to work through this. So let's start with the grading at first. So what are you proposing or what is, what is BC United proposing on that? Well, we're, we're frankly aligning ourselves with the majority of teachers and the majority of students even uh, and the majority of parents, the vast majority, that say uh, moving to this new approach that the NDP uh, and David Eby have put in place is, is not acceptable because it doesn't tell us enough about how our kids are doing. So they're moving away from letter grading to a new approach that uh, essentially has four categories, emerging, developing, proficient, or extending. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, that doesn't tell parents very much about how their kids are doing. And, and, you know, for the life of me, I'd sure like to know why we're moving away from a system that gave clarity, simplicity, and, and frankly, parents uh, and kids supported. Okay, but wait, did this process not start with the former BC Liberals? Because it certainly did for the primary grades. Of course, they're all, the academics are always studying this kind of stuff and bringing forward suggestions. And, uh, you know, but I, I can tell you, I've been around long enough to know that uh, these, you know, a lot of these so-called uh, professionals and people in academia very good people, many of them, uh, but I don't accept their recommendations as gospel, and nor should this government, particularly when they took the idea out to the public. They did a, a really wide-ranging um, you know, consultation, effectively, and the vast majority of people said, no, please don't do this. We don't like it, including teachers. Okay, so are you pledging to change it for the older grades, keep it for the younger grades? Like, what exactly is it? Well, the NDP have said that they're uh, now every grade from uh, grade one to nine will now uh, no longer have letter grades. We would restore that back to letter grades so the parents know how their kids are doing. Right through from grade one to nine? That's right. Okay, because that would be a big change because those younger grades have been doing this for a while. I, I know. Uh, trust me, I know. I've got uh, kids in the younger grades, and I look at the report cards, and as usual, I'm left uh, without any information about really how well my daughters are doing. I, I just, I, I think we've, uh, we can do a lot better. Okay, and let's talk as well about another point then. You talked about a smartphone ban. What does this entail? Well, this is important because, look, uh, the evidence increasingly is, is pouring in that, that, that smartphones, while they have some good aspects, uh, they've got some really troubling aspects, especially for young people, especially for girls. Um, and <clears throat> frankly, I think that uh, for six hours of the day, our kids can go to school 
and not be distracted by the incessant use of smartphones while they're in the schools. We hear increasingly from teachers, from principals, administrators of the distraction that these smartphones are pausing for kids are causing for kids. And so what we're suggesting is kids can still bring their smartphones to school, but that we fund uh, smartphone lockers so that they can lock them up when they get to school and spend six hours of the day undistracted so that they can focus and pay attention to their learning environment and be able to play in the fields uh, like normal kids without sitting there on their phones okay, uh, fun, during lunch and recess. Fun smartphone lockers that for every school? That sounds expensive. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, there will be a cost, but I think there's a huge benefit. Uh, you know, this is so often the case in public policy, we ignore the cost that we're seeing right now in terms of learning outcomes. We've got, in the last five years, under this NDP government, actually, declining literacy and numeracy rates. That's not me saying it. That's the FSA results. And, you know, when we've got declining reading and, and mathematics skills happening in our school system, uh, frankly, I think you can tie some of that to the fact that kids are often distracted on smartphones. The evidence is, is piling up around that. And wow. I think the right thing to do is make sure they're focused on what they ought to be focused on. I feel like debating the FSA results is another segment entirely. But let, let, I want to ask you about the school construction thing, because that's an important one. Yes. Lots of portables and series you mentioned, obviously a contentious issue in that community. What are you pledging to do about that? Well, first of all, it's not just in that community. I, I'm in the Comox Valley, and, and I can tell you in co- co- sorry, Courtney and Comox and Nanaimo and, and major uh, you know, communities right across the province, there is a huge problem with the lack of schools getting built. And I don't think, I, I should be clear here, I don't think it's because the government doesn't want to build schools. I, I do think they genuinely want to do it. It's just that they don't know how to get things done. Uh, there's a lack of a skill set in government to know how to accelerate and get projects built. Uh, I've been involved in the private sector and the public sector in building billions of dollars worth of, of projects. I know how to get things done, uh, whether it was the Canada Line, the Evergreen Line, the Portman Bridge, Pitt River Bridge, Sea to Sky Highway, whatever the case may be. But you've got to know how to accelerate these things and hold people accountable for getting results. And instead, what we're getting is these, uh, you know, these very frustrating announcements and re-announcements of schools that have yet to start construction. And I think they have to focus more on getting results. Okay, now your pledge says ensure timely and on-budget school construction. I mean, that sounds good, but are you talking about more schools? And if so, how many? And will you plan for the future in those schools? Yes, well, of course, we need more schools in almost every district. I mean, just look at the immigration numbers coming into the province. We have to get ahead of the fact that we've got, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people moving into British Columbia every single year. And that's putting strain on our healthcare system, on our education system, on the housing sector. And just like in housing, you know, where unfortunately government has spent the last six years focusing on the wrong end of the problem, they've been adding new costs to housing and taxes, uh, focusing only on the demand side, but doing very little to actually increase supply. It's no different with schools. We need a focus to get these schools built so that we've got those classrooms and, and uh, folks available when those students arrive. Okay, that's also expensive. This is more money. Are you pledging more money for this then? Yeah, but I'd also do it a little, a lot more smartly. So right now with this NDP government, they have uh, this very misnamed program called Community Benefit Agreements, which I call Community Ripoff Agreements, which mean that may, many of their capital projects are built using only designated unions are allowed to bid on these projects, and it excludes 85% of the workers in our province. That has driven up unnecessarily 
necessarily the cost of a lot of these projects. So, for example, I'm on the island here. The Couch and Hospital, which was supposed to cost $600 million, is now at $1.2 billion and counting. And that does not provide a single penny of additional benefit to the, lo- to the taxpayers of this province. It's just adding more unnecessary costs because of how the NDP procure capital projects to favor their union friends. That makes no sense. We've got to be smart about how we build capital. Do you have a number on that, though? Like how many new schools can you estimate that a potential BC United government could build? I, I don't have that number, to be honest, Simi, and uh, I, I just I wouldn't want to throw in a, a number irresponsibly either. I just I think it's more about we've got the capital and the budgets. We just have to focus on the execution of getting them actually built. That's where this government stumbles and fumbles. They don't know how to get things done on the ground. They know how to make announcements. They even know how to put aside dollars. They just don't know how to get things uh, going in the ground. And a final note here on the vaping issue. You've got enhanced efforts to prevent youth vaping. How do you do that? Well, first of all, we need to ban the flavored vaping. You know, a, a lot of the flavors out there, whether it's cotton candy or candy cane or cherry, these are all, de- these are all uh, about going after children and kids. We've got to protect them. We need to raise the age uh, to 21 for vaping. We need to eliminate the flavored vaping because I think that's a big problem that, that actually gets children involved. In a lot of the schools right now, the teachers tell me that the kids are texting each other, to, the older kids uh, are texting each other to go meet in the bathroom so they can vape. That creates an environment where the younger kids come in and feel very intimidated, don't want to use the bathrooms, etc. So we, look, I, I think this is about looking after our kids' health. And the bottom line is we've got a, a huge amount of kids now involved in vaping. That's not good for their health. We ought to act more aggressively. We've, we've been pushing the provincial government on this. We'll continue to do so. All right. Interesting one. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for having me, Simi. That's Kevin Falcon, leader at BC United. Now, what do you think about some of those points? Obviously, the opposition is going to try to score on these ones. We're a year away from a provincial election. This is Mornings with Simi. Love the premise of this next story because it really stops and makes you think. Could you spend an entire year without the internet? I don't know. I, I think I could go six months, but I don't know about a year. Our Scott Chance is with us now because he's been asking this question. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. I don't think you could go six months. There's I'm, no well, way. I'm a big reader of physical books so I f- and magazines. I always have been. Sure. I think I could, I, I could go a period of time without it. Yeah, and I, th- I, like, I, I get that, that logic, Simi, because I, I share some of that of like, oh, I don't, I don't need it. I don't feel like I need it to entertain myself. You know, I could find other things. Right. I'm just saying that you couldn't do it because of all of the logistical things that take place in our world where you absolutely, the internet is the only option oh, that true. you have because those things are everywhere. Our world is so connected to it, which is what makes the story so interesting. So... Aaron Rosenberg, he is from here, but he lives out east now, uh, decided to do this. He'll explain the story, but uh, he decided to do this and spent an entire year during COVID without going online at all for a whole year. And I just like I couldn't believe it. I had to figure out like some of the details around it and stuff and exactly like what the motivation was for that. So we had a great conversation and uh, I started by like just simply asking him like, why even do this? Well, before the year offline, I was a high school teacher in Vancouver. I was teaching at a high school in Oak Ridge. And I realized that my students had a relationship to their phones and their laptops that I sort of had as someone in my mid-30s, but I realized that the way that their devices were central to their life was different. And 
in some ways that dependence or that relationship was really positive for a lot of the students I worked with. But some of the students had some challenges in terms of self-regulation or being able to use their devices in the way that they wanted. So when I went back to grad school, I thought, what a great opportunity for me to experiment with what life would be like or what the student experience would be like if I didn't have access to the internet. So for a year, I had three rules for myself. I couldn't use the internet myself. I couldn't look at online screens. And I couldn't ask other people to do things online for me. And I didn't realize when I started the experiment in January 2020 that a pandemic would hit partway through the year that would force most people really online in a way that most people had never been online before. But it was a, it was a great experiment. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about the world of technology. When the pandemic hit, you didn't consider like, you know, oh, maybe I'll try this again once things have kind of cleared up. You just you committed and you were all in. Well, I actually had a lot of people around me, family and friends, trying to encourage me to take a break from the experiment. And I was getting phone calls and text messages from friends and a couple of my uncles that were saying, like, you know, there's no harm in waiting until after the lockdowns end and start picking up the experiment then. And I realized with all of these um, people reaching out to me that even without the Internet, I was still able to keep in touch with people who right. lived far away from me. And the kinds of conversations I was having over the phone were actually really meaningful ways to connect. I think that because the internet has become such a normal part of our life, even more so since uh, the COVID lockdowns, I think we forget that there are all sorts of other ways to interact with people, even if we can't be face to face with them. Right. So uh, just to be clear, so you could still use a computer or still use a phone, just no internet, like text message and phone call is okay, but no email. Exactly. And I, I have a flip phone, so I wasn't able to do much with my phone yeah. anyway. But yeah, yeah. it was interesting how much during that year people would say to me, wait, you're allowed to text message. And I think because of things like iMessage and WhatsApp, right. people have forgotten that just regular old text messaging doesn't use the Internet. But it is interesting how much these two worlds, the online and offline world, has started to blend. And it's harder and harder to trace what we're doing, what, what the things that we're doing that are online are and what things we do that aren't online. So I... Uh, I learned a lot about how even with the commitments I had made, I was still doing things that if you really traced it, did have lots of connections to the internet. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question is, it feels like, you know, and you talk about do, doing this during like, you know, working and going to school and all of that type of stuff, yeah. moving, all of that. So much of our life exists online. And, you know, it's like, I just registered for some courses this fall, got to do it online. You know, um, right. you want to, I don't know, make an appointment to see your doctor or your dentist that happens online, making a restaurant reservation, booking your car in front of all of these things. So did you feel like there was a, a part of this that was like, wow, this is really, um, unsustainable or did you, you know, t maybe talk about that experience because all of these things that, um, I think in some cases, places only talk to people online. They won't take phone calls anymore. Yeah, I mean, I realized a lot of things that I was trying to do offline during the year that I spent offline during 2020 had become almost um, impossible to do without internet connections. One example is when I was trying to book a Greyhound bus ticket, they told me I needed an email to print off the ticket, so there wasn't an option anymore for just printing off the ticket at the Greyhound station. And so I realized that year that um, despite my interesting maneuvers to try to avoid using the Internet, there are all sorts of parts of our life that, have no, that are no longer possible without the Internet. So what that made me realize is on the one hand, we need to ensure that people across socioeconomic situations, people in rural conditions, people with different disabilities or 
health conditions, but everyone has an opportunity to access the kind of resources that are available online. But on the other hand, I realized that we need to hold on to these alternatives, hold on to the ways that people, maybe people with concussions, people who don't want to use phones, I think there still needs to be these options for, uh, for people who are not online. And a funny little example is since COVID lockdowns, most of the restaurants I go to use QR codes for their menus now. Right, yeah. And I'm, of course, not able to scan that even now with my uh, non-smartphone, with my flip phone. So I realized that there's, um, I think we've sort of just accepted this change. We've accepted that uh, everything now is going to be online and we're just going to have to keep up with that. But I think we haven't yet really grappled with all of the social and environmental justice um, issues that are related to that. So, for example, I think when we use the Internet or our cell phones to do something like look something up or stream some music or a video, we don't think about the fact that that actually has environmental consequences. It uses energy. It has social justice consequences in all the exploitative labor involved in the mining and manufacturing and moderation and e-waste disposal. So I think... Um, on the one hand, it's a bit of a contradictory statement, but on the one hand, my year offline really made me committed to ensuring that communities who might not have the access to the internet should be able to access it. But on the other hand, it made me really committed to the idea that we need to have these alternatives so that people can still do things without having to rely on the internet. That's Aaron Rosenberg. He's a lecturer in the Department of Integrated Studies and Education at McGill, and his book is called Jacking Out, a journal of a year spent offline. And I found that so interesting, Simi, that idea that it makes you realize how essential the internet is to life, but also how we can't abandon these other alternatives. True. It's, I think it's a matter of limiting ourselves. Like I know people who have sworn they never want, they weren't going to get a smartphone. They don't want a smartphone, but it is becoming increasingly difficult to navigate daily life without one, even getting on an airplane, right? Boarding totally. passes online. Like I, I, what if you have a problem? You need to navigate that right away with your phone. It's just becoming so hard to do the daily things without this phone. And, and that's exactly it. And there are still communities like here in Canada that have like spotty internet access and those type of things, you know, and they don't have access to some of those resources that are in, in some cases only available online. Right. So how, how long do you think you could go? Like a day. I don't know. Not long. A week, maybe. I, like I, I admit that I'm like, I'm, I'm attached to it and it affects my mental health, which is interesting. Tomorrow, uh, you'll hear the second part of my interview with Aaron, where we talk about how his year without internet affected his mental health. That's really interesting too. Okay. Like for the better, for the worse? Well, what do you think? I think it would make my mental health better. I think it would make a lot of people's mental health better, it's just, even if we limited ourselves, right? Don't need to have it with you. I see people out for walks. Like I was out for a walk yesterday, meeting a friend and, you know, go for this half hour walk. And I see people crossing the street. I saw a, a lady crossing the street with two small children, but the whole time she was looking at her phone. Yeah. And I thought, it's a nice day today. You're out with your kids. Like, why are you looking at your phone? Well, Maybe there's times we can just leave it at home for yeah. a while, you know? Or, Simi, we just integrate it into our glasses. And so that there, oh, be, there becomes, Scott. but like, this is where we're going. There's like going to be, you know, and I'm so we need, we need to draw a line, right? And that's, I think, in many cases, what Aaron is talking about. But I'm fascinated fascinated by the conversation. I am actually too. So Scott, we'll have more on that tomorrow. Great conversation starter for you at home too. Like how long do you think you could go without the internet?